well, take your Bible. Uh, if, you have a, if you have an old school paper Bible or a, a uh, app or digital access to the Word of God, and look at James chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, this last paragraph of James chapter 3. We'll be continuing our study in the book of James this morning, starting right there at James 3, actually James 3, 13. 18 is the last verse in the paragraph. James 3, 13. By way of recap, recall that a couple of weeks ago we dealt with uh, the, what I believe to be sort of the, the foundational thesis paragraph of the entire book of James. James's assertion that faith, um, pardon me, salvation is achieved apart from anything on our part. There are no, there are no works involved. We are saved by grace alone. We are saved by faith alone, but in all cases, that saving faith is actually and visibly transformative. That the manner in which we conduct our lives after we are saved is different. Or we're not saved. And as I shared last week, I was so thankful to Brother Chad for the, for the clarity in handling God's word as he, as he taught us through that passage a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, James, continuing that same unit of thought, now wanting to talk about, well, what does that transformation of life look like? What are some ways that we can track that transformation if it's real? And James's primary example is the way we use our words. The, he led with speech because he knows that, that for most of us, all day, every day, we're involved in the exchange of words. We put out a lot of words, whether by our voice or by our keyboard or by our thumbs on our smartphone screens. We put out a lot of words and the, the transformative character of the gospel ought be very, very evident in our verbal output. And last week we concluded that the, the best use of words to bless God and bless people, to honor Christ and fulfill our role as his ambassador spokespeople in a fallen world is when we use our words to communicate his gospel. Well, James continues in the passage we look at today with that, that same vein of thought, what changes when we're born again, what, what is touched by that transformation? And whereas last week it was a, a contrast between using our words in a way that is honoring Christ and using our words in a way that isn't, this morning we look at, at the difference between worldly and divine wisdom. Worldly and divine wisdom. Before we go into the passage, let me, let me try a couple of definitions. Let me lay some framework by defining, in summary, the difference between worldly wisdom and divine wisdom. Worldly wisdom is understanding my life from the viewpoint of my own thinking and feeling. 
understanding my life on the basis of or from the viewpoint of what I think and what I feel. After all, I'm a, I'm a reasonable person. I pay attention. I know how to evaluate stuff. I have some measure of <coughs> common sense. Oh boy. Common sense, probably the most dangerous thing in the world if it's not grounded in the Word of God. Worldly wisdom is when the lens whereby I evaluate life is my own lens. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. It's not in your outline, but we'll have it on the screen for you. <coughs> says this about that. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly, foolishness. The wisdom of this world is folly with God. Think for a moment, if you will, about the cross. The word of God says the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Um, worldly wisdom would never tell the truth about the state of mankind. It is the gospel that informs us. It is the word of God that informs us that we are born citizens of a world at war with God, hopelessly mired in a, a nature that is predisposed to sin so profoundly that sin inevitably comes in and takes over. So that our every act, thought, and deed is, is, is just stained by sin. And we stand condemned before a holy God. So our state is mired in sin we can't escape, even so much that our supposedly good deeds are, are mucked up by our sinful character. Then we anticipate that we will stand before a holy God one day who is perfectly just, relentlessly righteous, utterly perfectionistic. Another word for that is holy. We will stand in judgment before that God with no hope and no help apart from Christ. But God loved the world so much that he sent his only son in the person of Jesus, that whoever believes in him, whoever trusts him by faith, whoever turns from their sin to follow him, will not die eternally in condemnation in a place called hell, but will live eternally instead in a place called heaven. That message is widely regarded as foolishness. That's foolish. Who would, who would believe that? Who would believe that Christ went to the cross, died at the hands of professional executioners, but then rose from the grave not long after? Foolishness. The wisdom of the world says, no, 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 no. That, that sort of myth, that sort of fable, that sort of religious allegory is of little value. And yet, if we practice divine wisdom, 
we know it to be true. Divine wisdom defined in your notes. Understanding my life from the viewpoint of God's word. That everything that claims to be true, everything that claims to be true, and I don't care if it's your own common sense, I don't care if it's that that news story you saw or that Discovery Channel special that you saw. Everything that claims to be true must be weighed and measured against what this word says. This word is the standard. This word is the barometer. This word is the measure of that which is either true or that which is not true. That is divine wisdom for God has in fact and truly spoken. We start in verse 13 with an introductory challenge. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show. Again, we're talking about that contrast that comes from transformation. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. If you're going to say that you No, God, if you're going to say that you are in communication with with the living God by means of the Holy Spirit, if you're gonna say that you're a Christian, let the wisdom with which your life is guided show. And then he begins to explain these two sorts of wisdom. Roman numeral one, worldly wisdom, verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. There are three things we're gonna look at for each of these two sorts of wisdom. It's their desire, what they're at, that is what they're after, Their demonstration, that is what they look like. And finally, their destination, where do they lead? Letter A for worldly wisdom, it's desire. What does worldly wisdom want? What's there in verse 14? Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy is when you look around you and see that there are others who who possess things that that honestly you would possess them if the universe were better run. There's some flaw in how the universe is set up that has led to you having that instead of me having that. To you enjoying that and me not getting to. This can be about it's, it's, it's about possession, but it can be possession of things, it can be possession of people, it can be possession of circumstances. Bitter jealousy. My, my agenda, my possession is not gone where it needs to. And then selfish ambition. That's about position. Position. I am not as important as I ought to be. I'm not as prominent as I ought to be. I'm not as powerful as I ought to be. I'm not as well rewarded as I ought to be if the universe were better designed. In short, it's about advancing me. Now we're gonna see in a moment that this frame of mind is not merely earthly. It is is authored 
in the realm of the demonic. Think about selfish ambition. Where does it have its roots? Okay, we'll do a little Bible trivia quiz for a moment. Some of you, some of you are gonna know the answer to this. Who is it in the Old Testament who had one of the highest positions in all the created order, but he looked up to the throne of God and said, I will be like the most high. Who said that? Satan, Lucifer, Satan the devil. I heard all three and you're all right. In that moment, selfish ambition was invented and he's been pushing it ever since. You say, Brother Russell, is it wrong to be ambitious? No. As long as your ambition is centered on the glory of God and the passionate pursuit of his will. What I want passionately, what I fixate upon every day, what I must desire is that the Lord would be further glorified in my life and that I would track in my journey on following him. I'm extraordinarily ambitious for that, but that's not selfish ambition. And you link, you link this, this jealousy and this ambition together, it's the me agenda. Worldly wisdom pushes the me agenda. Whatever inconveniences me must be swept aside. Whatever benefits me must be embraced. Whatever drives me is the highest value. What's it look like? It's demonstration. Where does worldly wisdom come from? What's, I mean, pardon me, what does it portray? What's it look like? Verse 15, it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Those last words in verse 15. That, that triad, earthly, unspiritual, demonic, turns up over and over again in the word of God as the big three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the temptation to think that this reality is somehow ultimate, that what I can see with my eyes is what matters most. The flesh, if it feels good, do it. The, the pleasing of myself. The devil, I will be further advanced in my own agenda no matter what God has for me. It's me, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We see this same sort of unholy trinity of enemies showing up in a couple of other passages. Turn with me to, to uh, First Corinth, I mean, pardon me, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. Describing the condition of those who were lost. Ephesians 2, 1 and 3 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. There's the world. Following the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. There's the flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Same thing shows up in 1 John 2.16. If you have printed out the PDF or you're looking at the PDF, there's a typo. I've said John 2.16 and what we handed out, it's 1 John 2.16 and I should have caught that, but I didn't. 1 John 2.16, let me go back to verse 15 and give myself a one verse running start. 
The word of God says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone, catch this statement. This is one of those statements that's hard, not because it's complicated. It's hard because it's so simple. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Terribly simple, very, very hard, because it draws a great, big, thick line between those who love the world and those who know God. If you love the world, if that's what's driving you, the sort of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition to which James is referring, it's, a, it's an indicator that you're lost. You just don't know God. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, that's the flesh. The desires of the eyes, that's the world. And the pride of life, Satan invented that one, is not from the Father, but is from the world. That's what it demonstrates. This worldly wisdom that pushes the me agenda is reflective of that toxic mixture of misplaced passions, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Where does it lead? Let us see, what's its destination? Where does worldly wisdom lead me? Well, verse 16 tells us. Disorder and every vile practice. See, if I'm pushing a me agenda at the same time you're pushing a me agenda and we have to somehow live in proximity to one another, we're gonna, we're gonna run afoul of each other and it's gonna get ugly and weird. We'll look more deeply into that in the very next paragraph of the book of James. It leads to, that word disorder there is a word for, for moral and situational chaos. Chaos, and then every vile practice. Fascinatingly, that word practice there is the Greek word pragma, from which comes our English word pragmatism. Just being, just being pragmatic, just using common sense. I figured this out myself, and this is the pragmatic solution. And hell giggles. Good for you, you're thinking pragmatically instead of biblically. And you don't even know who the author of your mindset is. There's a dramatic example. And I understand this example that I'm about to share is a high contrast dramatic example. How this world looks at abortion. And I also understand that in February of 2021 in a gathering this size in North America, it is statistically unavoidable in a room with this many adults in it in 2021 that as I bring up the matter of abortion, I am talking to women who have had an abortion. I'm being very careful with my eye contact because I don't know anybody's story and I'm certainly not singling anybody out, but it's a statistical inevitability that in a room this size, and I pray that you have discovered, ma'am, that God's grace is sufficient 
And that sin, like all others, can be forgiven. But gentlemen, we're not off the hook because it's also unavoidable in a room this size in the 21st century. I'm talking to the boyfriends. I'm talking to the husbands. I'm talking to the fathers who have arranged and paid for that oh-so-pragmatic, simple, surgical solution to that little problem. See, there arose a little problem. And that little problem is going to disrupt what we thought our next chapters were going to be. And we certainly can't have our view of our next chapters disrupted. That can't be. So let's use some common sense here. Let's think pragmatically. It's a quick surgical solution. Done. And by the time you sleep that night, that inconvenient interruption is no more. And pragmatically speaking, things just move forward. Neat as a pen, it's just common sense. See how easy that is? As I did that, did you, did you smell the sulfur in the air? Where that sort of thinking comes from? Because the word of God tells a very different story about what an unborn human life is, what that unborn human life is worth, and the one who will stand in defense of that unborn human as an image bearer of the living God. And again, it's not the unpardonable sin. And if you have, if you are among those in the room who have been involved in this sin, God's grace is sufficient, and I trust if you've come to faith in Christ, that sin, like all others, is under the blood of Jesus. If you have that sin on your record and you've not come to faith in Christ, you will stand condemned before a righteous judge as one who has murdered, one made in his image. He won't have any sense of humor about that. You better come to Jesus and beg his forgiveness. In fact, if you're outside of Christ, you've got enough on your track record whether you've had anything to do with abortion or not. You better come to Jesus and beg his forgiveness. <clears throat> so what does is, what is real wisdom look like? In contradistinction to that sulfur stink of earthly wisdom, what about divine wisdom? What about with the wisdom that God provides for his children? Well, we explore that in verses 17 and 18. Divine wisdom, letter A, it's desire. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above. From above, that tells you all you need to know about its desire. Real wisdom desires to respect and reflect the reality of a relationship with the living God. It's wisdom from above. It's not me leaning on what I can figure out, leaning on what some guru told me, leaning on my own reasoning, leaning on the, the wisdom of some self-help best self. Self-help is a funny category of books. Self-help is like reaching down, grabbing your shoes, and lifting yourself off the ground. That's self-help. That's that, that is the most 
bogus industry that ever existed. I can't for the life of me. It's like the whole section in the bookstore should be labeled suckers. But I digress. And by the way, that's, you know, yes, the word of God does not tell you how to change the oil in your car. I understand that. But you can change the oil in your car in a way that honors Jesus, right? So, uh, I'm digressing. That's where it comes from. His desire is to honor Christ. What's its demonstration? What does it look like? Well, he gives us some characteristics of, of what, what our life will, will, will reflect, what our life will look like if we're making decisions in a way that honors Christ, that reflects what the Holy Spirit is teaching us in his word. First, pure. That means morally reliable. Morally reliable. Second, peaceful or peaceable. Interested in the reconciliation of people, not the perpetuation of conflict, not interested in, in triumphing over others, but in reconciling relationships. Yes, between people, but even more, as we shall see, between people and God. Gentle means what it means. Not harsh, not abrasive, not narcissistically self-consumed without regard for the feelings of others. Open to reason, teachable. Thought about that one. Um, you know, as in, as in other similar passages, these, these characteristics show up most at home because that's where you spend most of the time living in relationships. Ladies, what if your husband said to you today, I think I got that wrong. And if you will, please explain to me how I can get it right and go slow because I can be a lunkhead. Some of your wives would pass out. They'd wonder who kidnapped you and replaced you with a lookalike. If you were actually demonstrably open to be taught something. And ladies, it goes the other way too. You know, sometimes he's right. Sometimes he is striving to faithfully fulfill his role as, as the God-given priestly head of your household. And you ought to be open to what God has shown him on the way to showing it to you. Full of mercy full of good fruit, impartial. That means both unwavering, steady, reliable, and it also means treating people equally, treating people well without regard to old prejudices or pre-imposed judgments. Sincere just means authentic, not phony. These, these characteristics form an interesting bridge because a lot of the language that they use is the language from the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. They're very reflective. Remember, James's big brother literally is Jesus. And he would have been aware, though he was not a believer until after the resurrection, he would have been aware of events like the Sermon on the Mount. And this language leans back into the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and leans forward to the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, sort of building a bridge between those two passages. 
what holy living looks like. Let her see its destination. Where does divine wisdom want to take me? What does divine, where does divine wisdom lead me? Verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is wisdom's role? What will I become as I follow the Lord and seek to live in authentic wisdom? I'll become a peacemaking planter, a peacemaking planter, sowing that which will ultimately lead to a harvest of righteousness. A peacemaking planter, one who is actively pursuing Peace, not only between people, but also between lost humanity and the living God. It comes down again to glorifying the Lord and reflecting the reality of my salvation in telling people about Jesus. It comes down again to sowing those seeds. That's, that's the role I will fulfill if I'm committed to, to real wisdom. Not only wisdom's role, but also wisdom's result, a harvest of righteousness. Oh, to see people come into faith in Jesus. What a burden, but what a joy. Conclude with one more scripture that speaks to this very thing, the relationship between wisdom and seeing people come to faith in Christ. Wisdom in God's people as we make decisions reflective of his word, live our lives in a way that reflects his glory and seeks his best for ourselves and those around us. Daniel chapter 12, verse three. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever.